Father God, we have gathered here this morning, and as we have done so, we do with the understanding that we are here on account of you. You are the eternal God who has given us eternal life. You have no beginning and no end, and you have brought us into union with yourself. And in that union, we now live eternally, free from the, the pains of death and sin. You've given us bodies that you will give us bodies that will never fail. You will give us bodies that are perfect, bodies that are not victims to the sin of this world. The deterioration that we face day after day will be behind us and eternity with you will be ahead of us. A gracious and saving God we will get to spend eternity with forever. We will experience your faithfulness for eternity as we live and worship and serve in your presence. Lord, we confess that we do not live with eternity in our hearts enough. No, our present focus is too easily on this world. We confess that we love this life far too much. We care far too deeply about this, these earthly bodies and the tangible things of this life. We fail to live by faith, a faith that looks towards eternity. Lord, give us eyes to see beyond the here and now. Give us hearts to long for eternity with you above anything else. And as we pursue you, may the things of this world become less and less. We thank you, Lord, for the new heart and life that you have given to us, that you did not leave us in our sin, that you did not and will not leave us in our mortal bodies that will die and decay, but will renew us as we live with you forever. This morning, we specifically also thank you, Lord, for the Reformation that took place in Europe on this date a little over 500 years ago. Lord, the Reformation brought with it a health and vitality to your church. And the church, Lord, is the foundation of the gospel and salvation through faith in this world. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what takes place, that nothing will prevail against your church. We pray for our church as well this morning. May we be a church that is never done reforming. Please continually be bringing us towards a better and deeper understanding of who you are. Always be bringing us into a deeper understanding of who we are. Lord, we also pray for us as this week there will be multiple ladies attending the Word Speaks conference here in Silverton. We pray for them as they prepare, that they would be able to grow in their knowledge and understanding of you. And may they return to us uh, ready and willing to serve and love your people better. And finally, we pray for your word this morning. May it bring life to our hearts, Lord, and encourage and equip us for whatever we may encounter in the coming days. Amen. 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 Thank you, Nick. You can have a seat. You can grab your notes and your Bible and open your Bible up to Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8. We are writing to you, brothers, with an account of the martyrs, especially the blessed Polycarp, whose death brought the persecution to a close. Almost all of the events that led up to it reveal it to be another martyrdom in the divine pattern that we see in the gospel. For he waited for his betrayal just like the Lord did, so that we might follow him in looking out for the needs of others as well as ourselves. True love desires not only one's own salvation, but the salvation of all our brothers. 
And so begins the early church letter entitled, The Martyrdom of Polycarp. It's not an inspired letter and may even lack the fullness of historical clarity in the detail of its events. But it gives us a hint of the spirit of the church in the second century, a few decades after the writing of Revelation. Christianity had grown to such an extent that it no longer enjoyed the protection that it once did under the umbrella of Jewish freedom of religion offered within the Roman Empire. Christianity had become known as an annoyance to the imperial government and was now enduring persecution from regional governors. In this case, Polycarp was an elder over the church of the city of Smyrna, a city that's in what they called Asia Minor. It's the only city that still exists out of the seven churches mentioned here in chapters 2 and 3. It's now known as Izmir in what we call Turkey. The story of Polycarp was published in the 4th century. It was most likely embellished as the story was told over the years and passed down through oral tradition. <coughs> Excuse me. It was told this way to have reflections of the death of Christ. But the letter captures the picture of an elderly bishop, Polycarp, about 86 years old, <clears throat> excuse me, who at the time had watched and suffered persecution in Smyrna. Early church fathers stated that Polycarp was a disciple of John the Revelator, the author of Revelation, the apostle. As the story goes, Polycarp was taken to an arena and told to apostatize his faith in Jesus. His response was simple. He said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? He was then threatened with fire, and they attempted to burn him, but the legend says that he would not burn, so they stabbed him, and his blood flowing out onto the fire put it out, so they had to relight it to kill him. But it wasn't just Polycarp who was martyred. The letter in his name speaks of those unnamed souls who were martyred for their faith in the first and second centuries in the church, to whom Revelation is speaking. Remember, it was only a few decades, the events of the letter of Polycarp were only a few decades away from the writing of Revelation. And they were martyred in their faith. The martyrdom of Polycarp reads, by the grace of Christ, they despised all the cruelties of this world, redeeming themselves from eternal punishment by the suffering of a single hour the fire of their savage executioners appearing to cool them because they fixed their eyes on their escape from the eternal, unquenchable fire and the good things promised to those who endure. You see, the early church was a group of outcasts and misfits, outsiders who neither fit into Jewish community nor Roman society, and so they found themselves alone and very, very vulnerable. And yet, it was upon their faithful witness and endurance that the fledgling church was built. They endured much that we may never understand here in the American church, and yet conquered because they stood firm in the encouragement of the early church fathers. One of those fathers was John the Revelator, and the apostle who wrote and inspired the book that we find ourselves in. And so this morning, we come to the second, what I call, mini-letter in chapter 2 of Revelation. Addressed to the church in which Polycarp was born, served and died, the church of Smyrna. It's even a great possibility that Polycarp was in his late teens at the time Revelation was sent as an encyclical letter to the church. Polycarp knew Revelation. It may have been going through his mind when he was martyred. And Smyrna was doing the very thing that Christ had exhorted the church at Ephesus to do, the church that we covered last week, to be a witness to the light of Christ. And because they were doing this, they were being persecuted 
and slandered. Their witness was causing them to be harmed by the world around them and even those within the church. And so today what we will be covering is a word to the church at Smyrna, and that word is Christ telling them to be faithful unto death. To be faithful unto death. Now this word is powerful, and I know that it's needed by the church in 2021, as it will serve as a strengthening word to a church that, if you've been paying attention, is growing more and more fractured and unfaithful every day. One of the latest poll numbers states that 44% of people that stopped going to church during the pandemic will never return to church by their own admission. The church is being fractured. The church is becoming more and more unfaithful. And so this word is very important for the church today and for Mission Fellowship today. Let's begin by reading our text in Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The first thing we see in this letter is a salutation. A salutation from the sovereign one who has conquered death. Now, one of the most helpful ways of looking at the structure of Revelation is to realize that chapters 2 and 3 are actually at the core of the letter and set the stage for all the rest of the book. In a way, then, these letters in chapters 2 and 3 help us settle on our interpretive strategy for how to read Revelation. For in each mini-letter, as you'll see up on the screen, the salutation will link backwards to the vision of Jesus as the glorified Christ and the universal king in chapter 1. Every salutation will reference backwards to chapter 1. And then the imagery and symbolism played out in each mini-letter, as each church is addressed in its present context, will be taken and built upon throughout the rest of the visions in chapters 4 through 20. There the faithful will stand firm in action for which Christ commands them to, and the unfaithful will, will falter and will give themselves over to the kingdom of darkness in spite of the warning that Christ has given them. So we'll see their present situations played out in the, the, what we know as the history, but for them the future of the church age and the visions of the church age ending in judgment. This church age will see multiple points where the judgment and reward of Christ comes as well. And so that will also look forward to the visions of the eschatological glory or the end glory that comes, judgment and resurrection, in the closing section of chapters 21 and 22. And we're going to use that imagery, and we're going to take that as our interpretive strategy to look at 21 and 22. Now, this is helpful in setting the stage that the visions of Revelation 4 through 20 are not just for some futuristic events that happen at the end of days right before Christ's return, but are the playing out of situations current to each of the seven churches in their present day, in the first century, and then also present and current 
playing out throughout the church age for every church since then and even beyond us until the consummation of the kingdom when Christ returns. And we see this displayed even in the titles Christ claims here in our reading in verse 8, the first and the last who died and came to life. We'll reference backwards. This is referencing back to what we saw in chapter 1, verses 8 and 17. In 1.8 and 1.17, Jesus referred to himself as the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, which are the first and last characters of the Greek alphabet. And Jesus will refer to himself in both titles three times each in Revelation. And in so doing, Christ is taking the title that God Almighty claims for himself alone in Isaiah. Remember this from a few teachings ago, Isaiah 44.6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And look, Besides me, there is no God, he says. So by Jesus claiming this title, he is saying, I am divine. I am the incarnate God Almighty. To the church at Smyrna, and really any church ever, but especially to them, this was fantastic news. For this speaks of God's sovereignty. It's very normal in our flesh, isn't it? When we encounter difficulty or hardship in our daily life, we cry out, God, where are you? Does anybody else do that, or am I the only sinner in the room? Anybody? A few of you? Yeah? Okay. God, where are you in all this? Or we wonder how good and just God is, because how could a just and good God allow the level of suffering we see in this universe? But friends, the hard answer to that question is that God rightly cares more about his glory and the goodness of his plan of salvation and redemption being carried out than he does about any one person's individual comfort. And I know this is anathema to our self-centered, humanistic minds. But the fall for suffering, trial, tribulation, and every form of sin lies not with God, but with mankind. It lies with us. For when given the option of God's perfect paradise and intimate relationship with him, our first mother and father chose rebellion in the form of attempting to usurp his throne and authority. In that moment, we, humanity, not God, gave the title deed of all creation over to the father of lies in the kingdom of darkness. That God Almighty has extended any effort towards redeeming the world that we destroyed, past and present, friends, it's nothing but grace and mercy. It's nothing but grace and mercy. And so God, rather than simply destroying us, destroying the nations and the world that rebelled against him, he is allowing graciously and patiently the kingdom of darkness to operate, while at the same time subversively infiltrating and conquering through the gospel and the church that the Spirit has built. So as this church, Smyrna, looks tribulation in the face, they recognize that God is victorious over the sin and death that surrounded them and us. To conquer death and hell is not to avoid brokenness and sickness and death, but to embrace that it will occur to each of us, and yet, when and how it occurs is an event over which God is sovereign. He reigns even over those moments that are painful and make no sense to us. He's the first and the last, and nothing escapes his sovereign reign and judgment. No matter what trouble you endure, no matter what tribulation, brothers and sisters, you think has overtaken you, it has not escaped God's watchful eye 
And he will judge it rightly and bring redemption speedily in his timing. And in the meantime, he will surround you with his spirit and his church to walk you through whatever trial or darkness you're dealing with. And we and the believers in Smyrna might say, but how can you say that? We're looking death in the face. We're looking persecution to the point of death, martyrdom in the face. How can you say that God is good, that he's with us? But this is where the second title comes into play. You see, he's not only the first and the last, but the one who died and came to life. Christ is not sitting at a distance telling the Christians of Smyrna to endure something he himself has not endured. He's speaking as the pioneer, the first, the only one who has stepped fully into death, been to hell, preached to the spirits in hell, and suffered a death he did not deserve, and yet emerged victoriously in resurrection three days later. It is one of the primary proclamations we have as Christ followers to declare to a world whose greatest fear is death that they have nothing to fear. When Christ died in our place and paid the price for our sin, death could not hold him. He resurrected to new life three days later and in so doing gained power over the entirety of death. Friends, there is no part of sickness and death that God does not have power over. He was spoken of in chapter 1, verse 18, as the one who has the keys, the authority over death and Hades. He is the final authority over death, and his redemptive work bound the satanic rulers of the abode of darkness, sin, and death, so that Christ's people need never fear death, or especially the destructive second death of an eternal hell. You never need fear these things, friends. Because Christ has conquered. And this is how later in the mini letter to Smyrna, he will declare and promise that those who are his own will not be hurt by the second death. Those who do not know Christ should greatly fear death. Because after death comes the judgment that for those who have rejected Christ will end in eternal torment in hell, the lake of fire eternally separated from their creator God and all that they love. And so believers are to stand in stark contrast because we have no fear of this same eternal end. We have no fear of death. We have no fear of sickness. These early first century believers have nothing to fear in the persecution and martyrdom they face because they are following the one who has conquered the greatest enemy of mankind, death itself. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this truth? Do you believe that we are victorious over death? Do you believe that we have nothing to fear? Does your life proclaim that you do, in fact, believe these truths when the topics of sickness and death come up? May the Lord remind our spirits that he is sovereign over life and death and everything in between. Well, next we see a commendation. Commendation for the church at Smyrna. You have endured slander and persecution. You've endured slander and persecution. This is in verse 9. 
He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Because Christ dwells amongst his church as a priest does tending his lampstands, he knows and sees and experiences with the church at Smyrna and with Mission Fellowship and with every other church that is his own that they have been in tribulation and poverty. As with many other cities and towns in Asia Minor, Smyrna had become a place where the Christian church was stuck between a rock and a hard place. They were stuck between hatred from the adherents of the Jewish religion from which they emerged and hatred from the pagans of Smyrna who pledged their allegiance to the Roman imperial system and cult. They were hated on both sides. This was specifically difficult at the level of economics. To operate in trade within the closed-off Jewish community, one had to be a trusted part of that group. In the Roman world, the trade guilds were very closely connected to their temple system, and so to engage at the highest levels of business in the Roman world meant giving yourself over to the imperial Roman cult system at some level. Both of these groups, being so heavily influenced by their false religious systems, left the Christian entrepreneur out in the cold when it came to trade. All that was left for many Christians, unless they went against their convictions of worshiping the one true God incarnate in Christ, was to be servants of wealthier patrons. And this left the church as a whole in deep poverty. But Christ informs them that it was this poverty that was actually proving their worship and intimacy with Christ. And so they were not, in fact, poor. They were actually rich in Christ. I wonder where we might compromise ourselves with the standards of the world around us where we could look to Christ's commendation to the Christians of Smyrna for guidance. Christianity does not require poverty on behalf of its adherents, but it should call us to examine how much we have decided to buy into the worldly system around us so that we too might have popularity and wealth and success and comfort. Does that sound like the Christianity that Paul defined where he said that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the wise? When we choose to not participate in all that the world tempts us with, perhaps we are actually richer, wealthier, because we cling to Christ and his word all the more. But it wasn't only the church's tribulation and poverty that Christ saw, but also the fact that they were slandered by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. These are pretty pointed words, right? How would you feel if you attended a place where somebody said, that is the synagogue, the gathering place of Satan. Pointed words. But one of the themes you will notice in these letters is that in either commendation or warning, it is blatantly obvious that John, and really Christ, was concerned about the fact that the visible church and the local congregations of these seven cities had amongst them false converts, non-believers that believed they were actual converts. They would have said, we are converts. In Ephesus, John noted, those who call themselves apostles and are not, but are false. You can see that in verse 2 of chapter 2. When we get to the letters of Pergamum and Thyatira, both these churches will be warned of false teaching, the teaching of Balaam and the spirit of Jezebel, both which were teaching heresy among the true believers in those churches. When we get to Sardis, we'll see that they had those who had soiled their garments with the ways of the world. And Philadelphia also had those 
who were part of this symbolic synagogue of Satan. That phrase will be used again. Christ warned his disciples that the enemy would sow tares amongst the wheat. And it is the job of the local covenant community to stand firm at the gates of entry and make sure that those who enter as members are true believers in service to the one true king. And it's the job of the local covenant community to call one another to account when they see brothers or sisters going astray or worse, sowing false teaching that is not in line with the word of God. This is out of biblical love because to allow false teachers is to allow the father of lies room to divide in a given congregation. Brothers, of, brothers and sisters, those of you who are members in this room, I want to ask you, do you take this job seriously or do you consider it someone else's job? But then more specifically than this general idea that there were Converts among them, or so-called converts among them, that were not, in fact, converts. More specifically, the early church was rife with people among them who proclaimed to be converted New Covenant followers of Christ, but were actually Old Covenant Judaizers trying to inflict ceremonial Jewish law upon the New Testament church as a means of earning grace. It was often then the rulers of the local synagogues in the Roman cities who were the ones instigating the persecution and slander of the Christians. You'll see all throughout Acts, the pagans say, yeah, we don't really like what you're saying, but we've got our own system. You go away. But then it was the Jewish leaders who would step up and say, oh, no, we need to deal with this. And riots would arise and persecution would arise. And this makes sense because to the Jews, the Christians were blasphemers who worshipped a failed Galilean rabbi who died a criminal's death. Throughout the, books of, the book of Acts, you can see that just as the religious leaders did with Jesus, they would hurl false accusations at Paul and at the apostles and at John, slandering their name in hopes that it would get the Roman authorities on their side. But let's pause for a moment. Look again with me at this, this statement that Christ makes through John. They say they are Jews, but are not. These folks that persecuted and slandered the church claimed to be Jews. They were often people of high regard from the local synagogue. They're even noted throughout Acts as Jews. So what does Christ mean through John by saying that they are not actually Jews? Well, Paul's words probably said it best in some of his writings. Let me give you some scriptures here. You can jot them down and go back and look at them later. In Romans 2, 28 through 29, writing to the church at Rome, Paul says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit of God, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul is using the word Jew here to discuss someone who is a covenant person of God. He's not using it to discuss ethnicity. Romans 9, 6 through 8. For time, I've just shortened down 6 into the second half here. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, if you're ethnically Israelite, doesn't mean you're actually part of the true Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, meaning biological offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
The point of Paul's comments here in Romans and the point of Jesus saying in Revelation that not all who proclaim themselves as Jews are true Jews is that it is only those who are in Christ that are God's people, true Jews and true Israel. This is the heart of Paul's statement in Galatians 3, 28 through 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, friends, the people of God are defined not by ethnicity or race or geography, but by Christ. They are not marked by the cutting away of flesh and circumcision, but by the cutting away of the fleshly heart to be replaced by a heart submitted to the spirit and rule of God. One of the main points of the New Testament is that God has fulfilled and proven true to his promises to the people of Israel in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. There is no further activity that needs to take place for God to prove true to his promises to Israel. There does not need to be another temple built. There does not need to be land given to the Jews. He is true to his promises. How do we know this? Because Paul said so. This is what Paul preached to his Jewish brethren in Acts 13, 32 through 33. We bring you the good news, another way of saying good news is gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by what? What's it say there? Raising Jesus. All Old Testament promises are fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, this will come into play in a giant way later in the chapters of Revelation, especially when we get to the topic of chapter 20 and the thousand-year period often referred to as the millennium. It's so important to recognize that in Christ, the dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile was done away with to form one new true covenant people never to be separated or divided again. And here in Revelation 2.10, Christ is using the title of Jew to state that those that are true Jews are in him, regardless of whether they are ethnically Jew or Gentile, because the church is the true Israel of God. And so as those who are not in Christ, even though they claim to be the covenant people of God, slandered and persecuted the Christians of Smyrna, Christ labels them a synagogue of Satan. He says, by not being in me, in Christ, anyone else is part of Satan's kingdom. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. In being part of this synagogue of Satan, you are doing the work of the father of lies as you invade the church with false teaching and slander. This is Christ's point. For it's at Satan's hand that the church is oppressed and slandered and persecuted. And it is in those types of moments where those who are truly Christ's distinguish themselves in their actions and response when they are slandered and harmed. Dear friends, not all who claim to be Christ's are actually Christ's. You shall know them by their fruit. It's in this background and context that Christ then gives the church at Smyrna an exhortation, an exhortation to remain faithful in spite of suffering. Remain faithful in spite of suffering. The sufferings that Christ is referring to is spelled out in the statement, be faithful unto death. 
In those days as a Christian, in that system, to be thrown into prison wasn't just to be imprisoned, it was to await a death penalty. It was not simply to hang out in a cell. It was to await your martyrdom, often in grotesque ways. The claws of animals in a coliseum, burned at the stake, harmed in grotesque ways. And it was in this way, facing their imminent death, that the early Christians would be tested to see if they would stand firm in Christ and allegiance to his reign. You see, our hearts are made known very quickly when we encounter difficulty. Our allegiance is made known very quickly when we encounter difficulty. As with the case of Polycarp, most of the cases were given the possible escape of denying their allegiance to Christ and pledging it instead to Caesar as Lord. At the heart of this suffering and martyrdom was the reality that the only quote-unquote crime, so-called, of these early Christians was to refuse to participate fully in the worship and allegiance to the imperial cult enforced by the civil government. Now, in our day, this seems so odd because government is supposed to be absent of religious overtones, right? Separation of church and state. We hear that all the time in our country. But friends, don't be fooled into believing that there is a separation of church and state. The humanistic ideology that backs much of how our social system operates is as much a religion as Rome ever had. Humanism is a religion that places humans at the pinnacle of sovereignty and dismisses divine intervention, stresses an innate goodness in humanity, emphasizes common human needs with government as the provider, and seeks to solve human problems through solely rational, political, and scientific means. Even in our day, to not participate in what the government decrees based off of this humanistic religion will end in a degree of disenfranchisement that, while definitely not as severe, is a step in the direction of the persecution that the early Christians had to endure for simply pushing back against capricious governmental decrees. Now, it is not martyrdom. It is not persecution in our day. But make no mistake, there is a religion behind how every government works, even one that declares that there is separation of church and state. Christians, however, can never be allegiant to anything but Jesus Christ and his sovereign reign. All other allegiance and sovereignty flows from this primary allegiance. So John calls upon the language of the book of Daniel, where Daniel and his three friends refused to eat meat defiled in Babylonian worship for, do you remember how long they, they refused? Ten days. It's very similar to what he says here in the first part of verse 10 in Revelation. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. If you recall the story of Daniel and his three friends, at the end of the 10 days, they emerged healthier and more wise in appearance than all whose allegiance was instead given to the Babylonian king. And just as they were vindicated, the Christians in Smyrna would likewise be vindicated from the trial of slander and persecution and imprisonment. But the reality was that this vindication would only come through death and resurrection to new life. They would not gain the vindication in their earthly life. And so their allegiance was tested. 
Again, we might argue with John and say, John, brother, this sounds like defeat to me. Death at the hands of false accusers? What worse death could there be? But the reality that Christ was stating was that death was actually the moment of liberation as they stepped into the resurrection in Christ, enduring trial and suffering until the end, submitting themselves into the hands of their sovereign Lord. With this hope, they could face any suffering, even death, knowing they were following in the steps of their king, who likewise endured persecution and martyrdom. It says this in Peter's first letter to the church, for to this you, the church, there's not one of us that gets a caveat or gets out of this, for to this you have been called. Friends, you have a calling. What is that calling? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. His steps of what? Suffering. Suffering. Satan was ultimately behind the suffering and persecution of the believers. But God was utilizing it in a way that proclaimed his glory and sanctified the believers for their good, ultimately bringing them to glory as they stood firm amidst suffering. And it is for this reason that there is only exhortation in this letter. You'll notice there is no caution. There is no warning to the church at Smyrna because they are standing firm amidst suffering. They are doing the fullness of what is asked of the believers. They had enough to worry about in simply staying firm in faithfulness. You ever feel like that? I have enough to worry about in just surviving another day in Christ. You ever feel like that? Well, friends, you're probably walking exactly in Christ. That is not a sign of failure. That is a sign of strength because we are among a kingdom of darkness. And this is much of the message that Christ was giving to the early church and that he gives to us. Eighty-four times in the New Testament, the message of suffering is repeated. Philippians 1, 29 through 30. For it has been granted to you, yay, granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also, what's that next word? Suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see why marketing the gospel in human terms doesn't work? Come buy what I have. You'll suffer by using it. No infomercial will ever succeed in doing that. And that's why it has to be the spirit that draws us, not a marketing scheme. Suffering is part of the Christian walk, and that's why we can say so easily that any form of gospel that speaks of prosperity, health, wealth, success, material victory, and comfort in the present life is so far from the truth. Why is this the case that suffering is part of the Christian walk? Well, friends, because until the enemies of Christ are put completely under his feet in victory, the world is still governed by the beastly nations that have the kingdom of darkness and spiritual wickedness at their foundation, and it is given over to those that are enemies of Christ. And because these nations and enemies of Christ run and propagate a system that is against our king, we will find ourselves constantly at war until Christ comes or until we go to be with him. Those who are in Christ will not feel at home with the way that things are going around us. We will not feel at home with our government, even though we pray for our leaders We will not feel at home with our economy, even though we operate within it to survive. 
We will not feel at home in entertainment or social media because these promote values contrary to those of the kingdom. And while generation after generation of Christian has tried to create a Christian subculture within the greater culture in which we can have these things separately, they have always fallen flat because the kingdom of God cannot mix with the kingdom of darkness. I worry for Christians who feel at home in this world. I also worry for those who have never, ever thought through, what if this life in Christ is suffering until I die? Will you still be a legion if that's the case? Is he still your Lord and Savior if that's the case? Brothers and sisters, where are you encountering suffering in your life? Perhaps it's in fighting against the original sin in the world. You're suffering from sickness or fatigue or all that comes with growing older. Perhaps it's in the fight you wage against the brokenness inside, the desire to escape through addiction, unhealthy sexual attraction, or temptation, or the effects of a broken world that come not in sin, but just in brokenness, in the form of depression and anxiety. Perhaps you find that you are suffering because you are isolated from the world around you. Or perhaps it comes from standing firm in your convictions against your employer or your government. Perhaps it's conflict with a close friend or a family member or someone from this church or someone who used to go to this church where you are pressing biblical truth, but there is an unwillingness to listen. In all these ways, we suffer in Christ. In all these ways and many more, sure, they may not be martyrdom, but they are a means of sanctification and identification with Christ. In all these areas, Christ has the same exhortation for you that he had for the church at Smyrna. Dear children, Remain faithful in spite of suffering. Remain faithful unto death. For if we do this, it will produce great fruit and a reward that cannot be taken from us. And so he finishes this mini-letter with a reward. Victory over the second death. Victory over the second death. Christ points to two rewards that will be given to those who conquer. Another way of saying this word conquer is endurance and faithful allegiance to Christ unto death. And these believers, even in the face of death, could do so because they were giving their lives over to the faithful creator who is sovereign over their eternal lives. The first reward is the crown of life. James speaks of this same reward in his letter. The crown of life speaks to the victory of those who are in Christ, and it intertwines with the second reward that they will not be hurt by the second death. They will instead find eternal life awaiting them after judgment. This is so important for us to think through and to take to account. I wonder if many of us modern Christians have given up on this idea of the afterlife, and so we think that all 
judgment. All reward should happen in this life. We see in this statement of a reward pointing forward to what we played out in chapters 20 and 21 later in Revelation. Take a look there. It says at the end of verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It's emphatic. They will not be hurt by the second death. And so it is pointing forward to chapters 20 and 21 later in Revelation. As we see those who are judged by Christ as unrighteous will be tossed into the lake of fire. Let's take a look at a preview. Would you turn there with me just a few pages to the right in your Bible to Revelation 20 and take a look at verse 6. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such The second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Look forward to verse 11, 2011. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we will cover this when we get to chapter 20. This, too, is symbolic language, but behind it stands an eternal truth. Friends, in our humanist postmodern world, we can quickly dismiss these pictures as myths or religious hyperbole. That is what the world around us has done. And yet, Jesus Christ... A man who died and resurrected three days later spoke of hell often, spoke of eternity and judgment and resurrection often. He portrayed hell as a place where the weeds that infect the field of fruitful wheat in the church will be tossed to burn with unquenchable fire. Take a look with me in your Bibles at Matthew 13. Turn there with me. Matthew 13. beginning of the New Testament, Matthew 13, and take a look at the words of Christ. He had just gotten done speaking of some parables, speaking of heaven. And it says in verse 36, he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. There's the synagogue of Satan idea. The harvest is the end of the age, meaning the church age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, 
and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Does that sound like what we learned last time with the lampstands and the stars? They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And notice how he finishes. Should sound familiar. He who has ears, let him hear. Friends, the existence of a second death, an eternal hell, is a reality. And it's a reality because it speaks to the justice of God. That we have dismissed it in saying that he is not a good God because he created a place of torment is to misunderstand our sin and how egregious it is. It is a just consequence for those who dismiss and rebel against their benevolent and holy creator. And every one of us is guilty. Only in the blood of Christ do we find forgiveness. It was believed and preached by Jesus who knew better than any human who has ever existed what the reality of death and eternal life is like. And yet we question, do we really want to place our humanist opinions up against his stated reality? Friends, have you risen from the dead? Don't we have ears to hear? In Christ, in his death and resurrection, Jesus and Jesus alone has paid the price for the rebellion that warrants hell. And he has resurrected to prove that his death was effective in reconciling us to the source of life so that we might have eternal life and covenant union with him. Dear friend, if you do not know Christ this morning, if you have not accepted his sacrifice on your behalf or bowed your knee to him as king, I want to beg of you to come and talk with one of our pastors after the gathering to discuss what it means to follow Christ and to step into his church through baptism. But for those of us that are his, friends, we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. You might say, but Hans, you just said that this whole life might be suffering. Yes, friends, and in that, you have nothing to fear because the second death has been conquered. Even if you die, you receive liberation. You receive freedom and glory and honor with Christ and his kingdom. There's nothing better. And so suffering cannot harm us. There is nothing to fear, not even slander or persecution or sickness or tribulation or death itself. For we follow the royal king who is the first and the last and the great sovereign over all creation. Friends, surrender your life into his capable hands. About 20 years or so after Revelation was written, an early church father named Ignatius said this in a letter that he wrote to the church at Smyrna. Quote, For I have observed that you are perfected in an immovable faith, as if you were nailed to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, both in the flesh and in the spirit, and are established in love through the blood of Christ. Obviously, the church at Smyrna had ears to hear what Christ was saying to his church. May we have the same this morning. 
as we pursue faithfulness in spite of suffering. Amen? Amen. Amen.